From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Racism and police brutality. The American Medical Association now considers both to be a public health threat. So what does that mean? And how does the AMA plan to confront these issues? Two Colorado doctors help us explore ideas they hope will make a difference. The goals, the challenges, and how the AMA is addressing racial bias and exclusion in its own ranks. Then, new help for people in Colorado struggling through the pandemic. There was, I think, a really strong sense of bipartisanship and camaraderie that we really wanted to do what was right for Colorado. And what's right for Colorado right now is passing the assistance they need. We'll talk with House Speaker Casey Becker about the assistance and about what's next after the special session. And remembering the first woman elected to Denver City Council. Thank you to everyone who made a gift yesterday to support Colorado Public Radio on Giving Tuesday. On a day of global giving, you helped make an impact right here at home. This year, in-depth, fact-based news coverage and access to soul-filling music on CPR has been a lifeline for many of us. You make it possible through your support. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The largest physicians organization in the country, the American Medical Association, announced this year it would confront racism and police brutality. And within the last few weeks, it's come out with a policy to do that. Today, we're going to talk with two Colorado doctors affiliated with the AMA about what this might mean for racial justice and equity in the healthcare system going forward. Dr. Jeremy Lazarus is a psychiatrist in Greenwood Village, Colorado, and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Colorado. He's President of the American Medical Association, the Colorado Medical Society, and Colorado Psychiatric Association. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lazarus. Thank you. Good to be with you. Dr. Taman Osborne Roberts is a family medicine physician in Denver. He's a past president of the Colorado Medical Society. At age 37, he was the youngest person and first person of color to serve as a president in the organization's 143-year history. He also served as chief medical officer of the agency that oversees Colorado's Medicaid program. He currently serves on the AMA's Council on Public Health. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Osborne Roberts. Thank you. Lovely to be with you today. The AMA released these new policy announcements just a few weeks ago. They acknowledge that both racism and excessive use of force in policing are threats to public health. And they talk about the need for systemic and structural level change. Dr. Osborne Roberts, what do you see these AMA policies, rather, what do these AMA policies say exactly? And what systemic changes are they actually proposing? Well, uh, overall, the policies uh, are, uh, as many policies are, you know, you're fairly uh, broad in regards to addressing uh, these issues. Uh, and uh, they really look at these issues holistically. One, um, racism in, in um, uh, public health and in the practice of medicine as a whole. And then specifically, uh, a little more specifically, but still fairly broadly, uh, looking uh, at uh, police, uh, excuse me, excessive uh, use of force in policing uh, as a threat to public health. Uh, in looking at them, they actually uh, 
um, the excuse me the board has gone through and uh, has taken a look and and has been speaking about this for a while, but has identified a number of places to make specific changes. Uh, one, of course, is acknowledgement of the harm caused by racism and unconscious bias within healthcare, uh, but also looking to identify tactics to actively counter uh, racism, mitigate its uh, uh, health effects, uh, encouraging medical education curricula to promote a greater understanding of the topic, uh, and even supporting external policy development and funding for researching racism's health risks and dangers. Uh, uh, and that includes in uh, health technology innovation, which we've seen some concerns in recently as well. And what are some of those tactics that might be effective? Uh, there's a range of uh, different ones uh, that you know could be used. Uh, obviously, uh, it really begins uh, with uh, the the start and 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 the uh, creation, if you will, of doctors. So the work under medical education will be exceptionally important. Uh, working uh, uh, through the AMA's uh, various partners uh, and uh, the uh, various uh, places where the AMA has influence to influence medical education curricula in such a way that they include um, both. Um, um, uh, excuse me, both uh, courses and training uh, intended to address both explicit and implicit bias. Uh, moving from there, uh, similar sorts of trainings you know, uh, would uh, could certainly be developed for uh, practicing physicians, uh, which would be an important piece of it. Uh, and then working uh, in uh, the halls of government uh, and uh, in the halls of policy to actually help create systemic change by making specific suggestions uh, related to uh, health equity and health justice inside of the, the health system. There are many facets to address this. You both have been working on issues of race and equity in healthcare for quite some time. Dr. Lazarus since the 60s, Dr. Osborne Roberts since the early 2000s. You've also both been very involved with AMA leadership. So give us a little bit of the long view here. When did this journey start in the organization and how did we get to this moment where AMA is finally making an official statement on racism's effects on public health? Dr. Lazarus, why don't you take this one first? Thanks a lot. Well, uh, my involvement with this goes back to the early 2000s. It really stemmed from a publication called Healthy People 2010, which came out of uh, Health and Human Services. And uh, we became more aware of disparities in healthcare as a result of that. That then was followed up by a report in 2002 from the Institute of Medicine called Unequal Treatment. And at that point, the AMA in one of its council took a look at strategies for eliminating, eliminating racial and ethnic disparities. Uh, that was followed up by a task force, which you had in 2003, and then the formation in 2004 of the Commission to End Healthcare Disparities, which was a commission composed of the National Medical Association, the American Medical Association, uh, the National Hispanic Medical Association, and many other member organizations to take a look at healthcare disparities. And since that time, there's been a cascading uh, series of issues that we've taken a look at from that commission leading up to 2019, where the AMA uh, brought on its first health equity uh, officer. And we now have an office of health equity uh, in the AMA. So this has been a, an ongoing, consistent and building process uh, within the AMA. I imagine the events of 2020, the police killing of George Floyd, among others, the Black Lives Matter protest across the nation put some pressure on organizations like the AMA to make some kind of statement or policy around racial disparities. But if this conversation has been happening since the time of the civil rights movement, why has it taken this long to get a policy like this put in place? Dr. Osborne Roberts? So I'd say there's a, a few reasons. One is that large ships are hard to turn. 
the AMA is uh, the largest uh, physician organization in the country, uh, and uh, uh, thus, you know, obviously uh, wields a lot of influence. But that also means there are a lot of people involved, and it can take some time uh, to change hearts and minds. Uh, that is really the nature of these sorts of organizations. Uh, it's also been an issue of having uh, some of the prior work bear fruit. Uh, you know, part of the way organizations change is those involved in the organization, both rank and file and leadership. And um, it uh, took uh, the Colorado Medical Society uh, 143 years to have a person of color as its president, myself. Uh, that, you know, I don't think was necessarily uh, due to recent failures of the organization. Uh, it just took some time uh, for people to become involved, to have an interest, to, um, uh, to uh, grow out of the uh, civil rights uh or, excuse me, to grow out of the civil rights movement and the opportunities that had uh, to be in a position uh, to lead and, and, and to, to be in the room and, and, and to assist uh, making some of these changes. So the AMA really is, is no different. If I could just add on to what Dr. Roberts said for, for a moment, that is that, in a sense, looking at racism and disparities in healthcare are basically, you know, they're symptoms of underlying issues like social determinants of health and other issues of structural racism. And like other medical problems like diabetes and hypertension, you know, we're now looking more upstream to the social determinants. So th in medicine, this has been an evolving process. And as Dr. Robert said, there's been an evolving process within the AMA. And what are you hearing from patients of color or people of color in the community in general about how they're expressing the need for policies like this? Well, overall, you know, I'll say that uh, we've been hearing about uh, the, the need for this for quite some time. Um, my uh, overall medical practice has been primarily with uh, communities of color over time and, um, you know, uh, primarily uh, um, um, new immigrants, uh, uh, typically Spanish speaking, uh, as, as well as a number of other communities of color. Uh, and given that, um, you know, you can imagine I've, I've heard a lot from my patients, uh, whether that uh, be the difficulties uh, that they find in being able to take adequate time uh, to take care of their health, whether that be particular, uh, you know, impacts of racism in, in, in their community. Um, you know, if you, if you don't mind, I'd actually like to tell a bit of a personal story. I would love that. So um, I, uh, as was mentioned, I'm a person of color. I'm, I'm a black person, uh, African-American of, of Caribbean ancestry. And um, my, uh, I trained here locally in uh, a residency program here. Uh, and my, I'm really lucky to have my, both of my parents and my sister uh, live in the area. And uh, I received a call while I was a resident and uh, on call <laughs> at uh, one point um, from my mother. And, you know, even during residency, you don't you know, send your mother to, to voicemail. You, you always pick up. Uh, and I picked up and she said to man, can can you come down here? Uh, and I said, what do you mean down here? She's like, well, your sister's having an asthma attack. We're down here in the emergency room and we have real concerns about the care we're getting. We, you know, and, and if you've ever met my mother, like she's, a, she's incredibly distinguished. She's kind of the Caribbean version of Downton Abbey, if you will. She's very, 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 you know, well, well-spoken, well-read, highly educated. Uh, same, you know, for my sister. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, if you say there's a problem, let me come down. And I come down and I spoke with them. And they were very concerned that the person that was treating them was treating them very differently than all the other patients around them. And um, they were concerned that it may be secondary to race. So I went over and I said, well, I have to ask permission. Do I have permission to review your chart? And they're like, yeah, no, go, go ahead. You have permission to, to do so. And I went over and uh, I reviewed, uh, started reviewing a chart and their provider came over and said, like, oh, you have the chart? Why? I'm like, oh, uh, well, I'm a resident here and that's uh, my mother and my sister in that room. 
And, um, you know, uh, I, I went in, I, I said, okay, well, I've taken a look, you know, your care looks okay, but if you have further problems, call me. And when I talked to them later, they indicated that after that short interaction I'd had with their provider, the care changed entirely. Uh, it is upsetting to me that, you know, the only reason they were able to receive adequate care uh, in that particular institution, you know, at that time from that person was because their son was a doctor. Uh, I don't think anyone should have to have a doctor in their family to be cared for properly in the medical system. Uh, and, and it's not just me. Many of my patients have similar stories. Thank you so much for sharing that experience. And you've pointed out that this is not just anecdotal. It's not just public opinion and cultural pressure that led to policy decisions. There is medical evidence and clinical studies that firmly back up the case that racism is a public health threat. Can you share that for, for a moment? Well, there, there are numerous medical studies that have indicated this for, for many, many years, but it's really come to uh, more attention now with the COVID uh, crisis, with this pandemic, where we know that people of color, black and brown people are disproportionately affected by it, both in terms of their background and the way they are treated within the uh, medical system. So this has really brought it to the attention of all of us in uh, medicine. And Dr. Lash, absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to add that absolutely COVID is uh, really put a very fine point on this. And, you know, there is certainly a, a long history of studies, both within public health and within clinical medicine, looking at this in different realms from what has been discussed over the past few years regarding black maternal mortality. Uh, and it's um, much higher rates, uh, you know, as compared to maternal mortality in, in other groups. And, you know, looking at, um, this is this is perhaps a bit of a shocking example, but uh, the rates of uh, orchiectomy, which is therapeutic castration, as a treatment for prostate cancer, which differs uh, substantially in, in, in uh, multiple studies uh, between uh, black men and, and men of other races. Uh, and even going to the, the way that the, the health system and data are arranged and some of the difficulties that, that we've seen in that, you know, uh, concerning Optum and, and, and the various ways that health data is collected in, in those stories from last year. There's, there's a fair amount going on, unfortunately, a number of things to solve. The AMA's announcement talks about ending racial essentialism. It's defined there as the belief in a genetic or biological essence that defines all members of a racial category. Dr. Osborne Roberts, what does this mean in the context of medicine? Why is it so important for changing outcomes? So the difficulty with race uh, used in a scientific concept, uh, excuse me, context, is that it's not a scientific concept. Uh, race is uh, a social construction and uh, is based uh, on you know, what is traditionally, and forgive me if I get a little technical, uh, is based on, on what's called phenotype, the way you look. That doesn't necessarily relate to a large portion of someone's underlying uh, genetic mixtures and predispositions and, and, and uh, the history of their genetic ancestry. And because of that, it can lead to inappropriate assumptions uh, and a lack of specificity uh, when uh, working with, with, with patients. Here's, here's a great example. Uh, I have had uh, patients 
that uh, have had cystic fibrosis, uh, terrible lung disease uh, that uh, can shorten lifespans and, and, and really requires early intervention uh, to uh, be able to, to, to be treated effectively and to, to help people live healthier lives. And I have had uh, only one, but I have had a black patient who has cystic fibrosis. Now, traditionally, this is a condition that is considered a quote-unquote uh, Caucasian disease, a disease of white people. Uh, but given this person's individual circumstance, it's something they, they have. Uh, and uh, it is the type of situation like that in a range of different ways that can lead to delays in diagnosis. Uh, you can uh, have a, a range of uh, problems um, related to having adequate study sizes and samples for, for research samples. There, there's a range of ways it can come into outcomes. And the COVID-19 pandemic has thrown the reality of these racial disparities in healthcare into stark relief. Dr. Lazarus, do you think that played a role in informing or perhaps speeding along this policy to end this, to end racial essentialism? Yes, I, I really do think that the awareness of this going on, I think the Black Lives Matter movement, I think this is all in the public awareness and it's in the, in the awareness of physicians like everyone else. And then on top of that, the COVID pandemic, I think, led to this uh, policy discussion that we had at the uh, at the AMA. So no, no question that uh, it's part of the ongoing issue in the uh, in the society that led to this. I wanted to just add one more thing to what Dr. Osborne Roberts mentioned uh, about racial essentialism. And that is the the additional concern about the use of artificial intelligence or machine learning, and as we think about how this might impact the kind of medical treatments we have. And if we, do, if we are only using race as a social construct, which it is, we are not gonna be able to have the correct uh, information in those systems. And there will be automatic and extreme bias perhaps built into those systems. So that's another reason why this particular policy is so uh, uh, powerful. Let's talk about the AMA's policy around excessive force in policing and acknowledging it as a public health threat. The announcement says black Americans are three times more likely than white Americans to be killed by police and account for over 40 percent of victims of police killings nationwide. Dr. Osborne Roberts, can you explain what the AMA is proposing to do about this? Well, the AMA is currently uh, in uh, the middle of, of uh, working on, on the specifics. Uh, this is an incredibly uh, complex issue, uh, and uh, it's a complex issue in a, a profession that is uh, oftentimes uh, considered, uh, if you will, a sister profession uh, uh, to the uh, practice of medicine. Uh, because of that, uh, the AMA, through its various councils, uh, through the Center for Health Equity, uh, through its board, and through all of the, the various different uh, or uh, organs that it has, uh, is professional organs, is working really, really, really uh, carefully uh, to outline, uh, first to study and, and then to work on an outline, uh, a series of different policies uh, that will work to address this uh, over time. The language in these policies, it's still sort of aspirational rather than practical or action-oriented. The policies, they use words like acknowledge, recognize, support, encourage, collaborate, what weight can they actually have? Do you think that regular people can expect their experience with healthcare to change as a result of this shift? Dr. Lazarus? Well, I think it is our hope that this in, in this ongoing process since the early 2000s that we'll have another uh, attempt to get this in the mind of physicians and that by educating them at both the undergraduate medical and graduate medical and practicing physician level and system level, 
that will be able to increase the awareness of these issues, which many of which are implicit or unconscious, so that many of us might not recognize the kind of implicit or unconscious bias we have. So we would expect that that would eventually improve the kind of medical care that uh, people of color have in this country and reduce health care disparities uh, overall. And if I might add, uh, the uh, AMA is an organization that's very large and sits at a lot of different tables. Uh, those tables are sometimes in federal and local government, uh, sometimes with sister organizations that do things like set accreditation standards for medical education and various things of that nature. Um, and the AMA having a set policy on the books, calling this out as a very specific thing to address directs the AMA to be able to begin to intervene specifically uh, in these various different places and areas as opportunities arise. There's an old saying in policy that uh, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And uh, calling these particular policies out uh, and uh, saying that this is a priority for the organization to deal with moves them from, from the plate to the chair uh, and gives the organization an, uh, an opportunity and direction to begin addressing them concretely and specifically. The AMA itself acknowledges it has a history of racial bias and exclusion. The AMA issued an apology to black physicians, but not until relatively recently. So how do you see policies like these succeeding in that context? Well, that acknowledgement uh, that you mentioned that goes back to about 2008, uh, I was part of the board at that time, was again a, an attempt at uh, reconciliation. So, uh, uh, taking a look at and facing the fact at the time, the fact that there had been this uh, history uh, in the AMA and trying to write uh, that wrong. And I think uh, over the course of the years with the Commission to Healthcare and Healthcare Disparities, now the new uh, health uh, equity officer, the recent policies that have been passed over the last couple of years, I think there is that attempt at telling the truth, reconciling what's been done, and trying to repair whatever damage has been done to the best way that we can. And I would add that it really is multifactorial. Uh, part of it is short-term, part long-term. Short-term th things that AMA uh, can do, you know, have to do with, you know, really continuing its, its legacy of working towards greater health equity um, and continuing to change the organization. As Dr. Lazarus mentioned, uh, the AMA recently hired a chief health equity officer uh, and uh, has uh, created uh, an office of health equity to work uh, specifically on these issues with a substantial piece of funding. Uh, the AMA Foundation, its philanthropic arm, has for a long time and continues to expand its programs to assist uh, uh, students of color and, and uh, various uh, different clinical operations and communities of color uh, to, to become more robust and provide funding for all of those. Uh, the AMA will continue to influence medical education to ensure that issues of health equity are addressed there. It's, it's not any one thing, and it's very clear that it's going to take a long time uh, mm -hmm. for a number of people in communities of color that have been traditionally underserved to really begin to, to trust the medical system again. But yeah. if you don't start this work, you can't accomplish it. Well, I uh, want to thank and you. And while there's still a lot of work to be done, the, the AMA is continuing to move forward. We're going to have to wrap up there. Thank you both so much for joining us, Dr. Jeremy Lazarus and Dr. Taman Osborne-Roberts, talking about the American Medical Association's announcement that it is confronting systemic racism and police brutality as public health threats. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now's the time to get your front row seat to a CPR tradition, the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. 
I'm Ryan Warner. Join me and Avery Lill December 9th from the comfort of your home for music, conversation, and laughter. Our big event is virtual this year, so that we spread joy and not virus, attend a special screening, and get a CPR cookie cutter. Sponsored by First Western Trust. Tickets at CPR.org holiday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The General Assembly convened a special session Monday to address pandemic relief. Lawmakers passed bills related to child care, broadband access, and small business and restaurant aid. In total, the state will spend $342 million. The session ended yesterday, and Speaker Casey Becker joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Going into this session, what were some things you heard from your constituents? What were things that they were begging for? You know, mostly people want to um, see the pandemic end. And I think people understand that uh, for, for life to get back to normal, for the economy and our jobs and our schools to get back to normal, we really have to um, defeat this virus. But in the meantime, until we defeat the virus, either through vaccination or any other way, the best that we can do is actually provide relief um, to families and school districts and businesses and things like that. I think mostly, though, folks just want things to get back to normal. When he called this session, Governor Polis said he wanted the General Assembly to address specific issues like we mentioned. Can you explain what still needs to get done? I think that we'd like to see Congress do a lot more to um, help with, you know, the 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 funding that, you know, schools need, the support that small businesses need, the support that families need. If they don't act, the General Assembly will try to do more for all those people. We just don't have the same uh, deep pockets that the federal government has. So I think that there's, you know, continued opportunity to say, how can we do better, you know, meeting the broadband needs of school districts, or how can we do better supporting people who can't pay their bills? We did what we could for now. We hope that Congress acts. And then when the next session starts in January, you know, we'll sort of have to evaluate then. We know the state can only do so much and the governor has been calling on the federal government to do more. What are some areas that require federal intervention? So the reason we even had the opportunity to do what we did this year, which was this session, which was spent about $350 million, is because the federal stimulus that came in, you know, in May and June and July that kept uh, paychecks coming and kept people being able to buy things at stores meant there was more income tax and sales tax coming to the state. And so we could use that increased revenue um, to continue to support people in, in like we did in just this past session. So we need federal economic stimulus to help you know, pay for schools, um, pay for universities who are seeing a huge decline in enrollment and keep those people working or help with student loans. We need uh, we need federal assistance to help people, again, just stay employed, help, you know, restaurants keep people on the payroll, things like that. Yeah. We also need them to help with, you know, I mean, we're incurring huge dollars, huge costs in terms of the all the testing that we're doing right now as a state that we're picking up the bill for or the PPE. Um, the, you know, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has a huge response system set up and they're doing um, 
tracing and providing advice and updating, you know, protocols and following the science and all that, you know, it, it takes, uh, it takes work and it takes funding. You mentioned restaurants. One bill the legislature passed allows restaurants to keep up to $10,000 of sales tax they collect every month. How is that going to affect the budget for next year? You know, it'll definitely have an impact. It's um, a few, um, you know, I think we we had about $40 million around that amount um, earmarked for that. So it does have an impact to the state. Um, but, you know, having people unemployed is also an impact to the state. Uh, so, you know, this is targeted help for, you know, one industry that's one of the most affected industries by the pandemic. And this was a session with a lot of bipartisan cooperation, but usually that means a lot of compromises. What was left on the cutting room floor in the negotiations before the session started? There are there's definitely a lot more we can do and different sectors of the economy that we could help. One thing that came up really late in the process, um, actually after the the we'd already convened, is how can we help the agricultural sector? Uh, we just didn't have time to figure it out in the last couple days, but I think it's going to be something folks work on in the next couple months um, to say, you know, in the ag industry, what can we do? We, we helped food pantries and we're helping getting food to people. But I think for, for agriculture and production agriculture, there's, um, there's going to be more talk about that going forward. How do you think issues like agriculture and other issues that were left on the cutting room floor might be addressed during the regular session? Some of it, again, might be direct assistance. You know, I think it's really sort of surveying what the needs are and what the impacts are and and talking to a variety of people. So, you know, like any other industry, I think they've been impacted supply chains, ability of people to work, um, you know, they're you know, restaurants aren't um, as busy, so they're not buying a lot of the same products. So they're just impacts to our farmers. And that's that's one example of something that could still um, be done. You know, someone else brought up the idea of um, we're helping people with their energy bills. What about their water bills? That's something that could be looked at. There's, I think, um, interest in continuing to support um, some of the arts you know, obviously people aren't going to concerts, they're not going to museums, and that has an impact on our whole arts community. And we did a little bit of that in this special session, but, you know, there's obviously the opportunity to continue to support those um, organizations. There are just so many different ways each industry is affected. One of the bills is a $57 million grant program for small businesses, but the language in this bill makes it available only in counties that are not defying public health orders. Why the distinction, and is that fair? So if you're if you're not following public health orders and you're not limiting the size of the of the people that you serve then you probably don't have the same economic impact. So that's really the rationale is if you're, you know, not down to 25%, you're letting anyone in, then you really just don't have the same economic impact. We want to incentivize people to to adhere to public health orders and we also want to help those businesses that are most impacted. What about for businesses within those counties though that might be obeying them but the counties themselves are defying the order? Yeah, I mean, so so we did address that. There are, um, you know, chambers of commerce and, and other groups can apply for the funding and, and then get it to the businesses who are complying. 
So, you know, again, if we can get it to the businesses that need it most, and also the ones who are complying with public health orders, um, that's where the sweet spot is. For the most part, like we said, this has been a very bipartisan special session. But while there was agreement on many issues, legislators couldn't seem to come to a consensus on wearing masks while on the House or Senate floor. Can you explain that disconnect? Sure. You know, legislators, each legislator has a constitutional right to be there to represent their districts. So while we could mandate that any member of the public or staff wear masks, we couldn't do that with legislators themselves. And many, I'd say the majority of legislators chose to wear masks. Some did not. We asked them to. We provided um, free testing for them. Um, And we certainly said if, you know, we, we can't stop you from not wearing one, but we expect you to you know, treat everyone in a safe way. I think uh, for some people, maybe it was a political statement in not wearing it. Um, and so we we did t- the rapid testing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's also available for legislators and staff today and tomorrow. So, you know, we did the best we could. Really what we tried to do is keep everyone socially distanced, um, keep the whole session short, keep the meetings short, and ask people to be respectful to each other. Speaker Becker, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Casey Becker is a state representative from Boulder and Speaker of the Colorado House. A step back now to the early 1990s. Here's Denver City Councilwoman Kathy Reynolds asking Congress for money to help cities recover from a recession. After all, our national economy is a product of all our local economies. The only place we can grow our economy is in our cities and towns. We believe there must be a major refocus of national priorities to begin rebuilding America. She's speaking there on behalf of a national group of cities, and she had a specific request for Denver, money to help revitalize a neighborhood that had been struggling for decades. What we know it today as Lodo, what is now Coors Field under construction there at the time. Reynolds was a political powerhouse and the first woman elected to the Denver City Council. She served for 28 years before retiring in 2003. She died last week at age 75. I'm joined now by Denver Councilman Kevin Flynn. He's a former Rocky Mountain News reporter and covered Reynolds when she was in office. Councilman, welcome to the program. Thank you and good morning. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. What was Councilwoman Reynolds' sort of trademark? What kind of legislation did she focus on? You know, a lot of folks remember her for bricks-and-mortar projects. You know, the convention center, Coors Field, uh, the airport, things like that. And, uh, you know, a guy actually got in her face one time and said, you know what your problem is? You never saw a project you didn't like. And quick as a whip, she turned around and says, no, you never saw a project I didn't like. She was that self-confident. But actually, I prefer to remember her for the social uh, issues that she pushed. Uh, primarily one that actually ended up at the U.S. Supreme Court. She was a driving force behind Denver's first uh, gay rights law, the first civil rights law for uh, LGBTQ uh, communities. Uh, And this was in the late 80s, and it came up uh, through the ranks, and it was challenged at the ballot for repeal, 
and the voters of Denver upheld the ordinance. Then it translated into a statewide movement commonly known as Amendment 2. A lot of folks will remember that. I think it was 1992. And it passed statewide, and it forbids cities from having equal rights laws for LGBTQ communities. That fight resulted in Colorado being boycotted, being called the hate state, and eventually it was appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was upheld. And Kathy once remarked that that was one of her proudest moments in office. Forget about the convention center, the course field, the airport. It was these social issues. It was things like uh, getting rid of exclusionary zoning that prevented unmarried couples, particularly gay couples, from living together in the same household in R0 zoning. That meant the most expensive parts of town, the most exclusive parts of town. That's how I like to remember her, frankly, Avery. Now, we mentioned that she is the first woman elected to council, but she actually took office at the same time as somebody else, a woman named Kathy Donahue, and together they were known as the two Cathys. The two Cathys. Tell me about that. Uh, it's a it's an asterisk. It's like Roger Maris's uh, home run record in '61. He hit 61. <laughs> he had more games. What happened there in 1975 was uh, Reynolds ran for an at-large seat, and those are always won outright by the two top vote getters. So she was actually certified in May of '75. Kathy Donahue, who was equally as as fiery and influential on the council. Uh, had to go into a runoff in June before she won her district seat in Capitol Hill, uh, District 10. and But they were inaugurated at the same time. And uh, frankly, that opened the floodgates. Uh, I looked at the history of council members prior to that and after that. When those two women, those two Cathy's, were elected in 75, since then, 56 people have been elected to the council in the election since then, and more than half of them have been women. So it kind of opened the floodgate. Literally opened. Talk the, about breaking a glass ceiling. <laughs> they opened the yeah. door and they kept it open. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, I serve with eight women on the council, and there's five men and eight women. Now Reynolds, she was a strong personality. Can oh, yeah. you Can you give me an example of that from your dealings with her when you were a reporter? <laughs> oh God, uh, when she was council, she was council president a record four times and one half a year. Uh, she took over uh, as council president when Elvin Caldwell was uh, appointed manager of safety in 1980 by Bill McNichols. So she served four and a half terms as president. During one of those terms, I used to sit at the press table, and I had a deadline. You know, my metro deadline was about 10:20, 10:30, and uh, I would sometimes have to signal to her when somebody kept on talking and talking and talking. And uh, I remember Councilman Bill Roberts at one point uh, was was going on and on, busting my deadline. And I would give Kathy the high signs, sort of like, you know, slashing my throat, you know, say, hey, cut this guy off. And she would do it. Thank you. Yeah. And then they would retire down to the Cherokee Bar and Grill, a uh, number of them, and hold uh, hold some discussions and, and build relationships. And that's what, uh, that's what city council needs to do. We need to build more relationships and, and get things done that way. She was more of a ringleader. Uh, she didn't accomplish anything by herself, Okay. But she was a ringleader and an organizer, and she knew how to count to seven. Uh, Tim Sandoz, a councilman uh, for one term at large with her, was at one night on council was sponsoring a bill, and he was waxing eloquently, as he put it, talking on and on about the merits of this bill, and it was going to pass. And Reynolds slipped him a note in the middle of his speaking, and the note said, according to Tim, right now you have seven votes. Keep talking and you'll have six. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> she sounds like quite the woman. Now, Kevin, you've been in those diversity council meetings a lot of nights, first as a reporter. Now you've been on the council for five years. Is there something that you learned watching her that you keep in mind now? Yes. Um, and, and I hinted at it before. It's relationship building. It's counting to seven. It's working with different communities to get things done and make sure everybody's at the table. And uh, she was often at the table with a glass of wine and a cigarette <laughs> in her hand. Um, she is uh, responsible for the Park Hill Golf Course, having the con- conservation easement on it today wow. and preserving that as open space that, that we see today, and it's so much in the news. Her influence she is was... really a lot of places. We've got to wrap up. Kevin, thank you for okay. joining us. That's Denver City Councilman Kevin Flynn remembering Councilwoman Kathy Reynolds. She died last week at age 75. It's December 3rd, just weeks from the official start of winter, and wildfires are still burning in Colorado. This week, firefighters were finally able to fully contain both the Cameron Peak Fire near Loveland and the East Troublesome Fire burning near Kremling. They're the two largest wildfires in recorded state history. Even with cooler weather and recent snows, severe drought conditions have gripped the state for the past four months. So we've got a longer fire season, and we've got a hotter fire season now compared to just a few decades ago. That's Jennifer Balk, director of the Earth Lab at CU Boulder. She thinks long, hot fire seasons are something people may have to adjust to as climate change intensifies. And it's not just people. Even trees are migrating in response. I recently spoke with science journalist Zach St. George about his book, The Journey of Trees. Zach, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Obviously, trees don't uproot themselves and move. How does a forest migrate? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's a it's a generational endeavor. Trees produce seeds and seeds sprout and um, trees die. And kind of as, as, as that happens over time, if it happens in one direction or the other, the forest migrates. And what causes it to happen is conditions change and allow seeds to survive in new places. So what causes the migration of forests is climate change. So seeds get scattered, they survive in one direction, and they migrate in that direction eventually through generations of trees. The last 11,000 years have been relatively steady. We're entering a period where it's changing faster and to a much greater degree. So tell me more about why that's happening now and why that sparked your book. Yeah, so around the world, scientists have tracked species of trees moving toward the poles and upslope. They're seeing tree lines shift. And so, yeah, you know, the last 11,000 years since the last ice age, of course, things have not been perfectly steady, but it's been, compared to what we're experiencing now, it's been relatively steady. So uh, the migration and and changes to the world's forests were were pretty easy to miss for most of that period. And and now we're entering a point where um, these things are happening really quickly. Uh, There was just a big study of the Western Hemisphere found um, really everywhere scientists looked, they found plant communities changing. And so some of that will be really subtle. You know, it might be uh, just trees kind of popping up in new places, um, and it might be really easy to miss for people. But the other side of it, where species, uh, where their ranges are contracting, that might be really hard to miss. So you see things like more fires as you have stressed out trees. You might have, you know, insects attacking stressed out trees. So I know in the Rockies, there's been a lot of beetle kill. 
in recent decades, um, or you might have things like aspen dieback where warmer temperatures are causing stress. So these are all facets of forest migration. So trees are changing naturally in response to the changing world, but humans have also tried to intervene. Tell me a little bit about that and maybe about Connie Barlow. Sure. Yeah. So the, the question that starts my book is, should people intervene and, and try to help trees migrate to places where we think they'll be better suited in the future? And it starts with this woman named Connie Barlow, who for a couple of decades has made it her mission to help this tree called the Florida Terea. It's a very rare tree in uh, western Florida to try and help it move north and and uh, to where she, she thinks it would be better suited. Um, it's been suffering from a fungus in Florida, and so she thinks it's a symptom of a climatic mismatch and that this tree, this species, ought to be further north, that it got left behind at the end of the last ice age. For whatever reason, it, it wasn't able to migrate north when it should have. And so she's been trying to move it north with a group of volunteers called the Terea Guardians. Um, and it's been really controversial among, you know, traditional conservationists because um, and ecologists, this is, because this is not how we've done conservation for the, the last hundred years. You know, we, we, we have the story of unintended consequences is a big story in biology. So the idea of actually intervening is controversial. It sounds like it's somewhat ongoing, but has the approach seemed to work at all? Yeah, I, I think... Um, I think it's hard to say. I mean, it's been 20 years, so they do, or 15 years, I guess. So they do have uh, instances where, you know, the trees that they've planted have grown up to produce their own trees. Um, Is it a successful strategy? I I don't think it's clear yet. But um, I think a lot of conservationists around the world, conservationists and scientists, are looking at the possibility of moving trees or needing to move trees and other slow species because, you know, climate change right now is is happening very quickly and humans have developed much of the world. So many of the routes that used to be open are closed to species now. So I think this is something we're going to be uh, considering and and talking about a lot more in the future. So the idea is that trees may not be migrating fast enough. Here in Colorado, the forests are one of our biggest natural resource assets. They draw tourists, they sustain ecosystems, they inspire outdoor recreationists. We're definitely seeing some of the effects of climate change on our trees, though. Drought, wildfires, bark beetles, just to name a few of the threats to Colorado's trees. What are we looking at in terms of tree migration here? I think you can view these um, things like trees dying from drought or uh, water stress and from insects. I think you can view these as kind of facets of forests rearranging themselves in response to climate change. And you know, I think we're going to see a lot of dead trees in the future, and, and um, it might be harder to notice. I think there's also going to be a lot of trees sprouting in new places. I think we're just going to see, in general, a lot of rearrangement to our forests and to our plant communities in general. So uh, I think it's useful to kind of view these uh, seemingly separate events as kind of pieces of that bigger change that's that's underway. And you say that you could have told the same story with different trees, and you could even have told it with other plants. Enjoyed what you wrote. You said you can hug a tree. Try hugging a quill wart. So in a sense, you chose trees not because they're outliers in climate migration, but because people are hardwired to care more about trees and other plants? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I you know, I, I, I kind of jokingly, I mean, I think trees are the only shape of plant that most people really care about. Um, you know, they're big, they're slow, 
everyone's familiar with what they are. We we care about plants, uh, about trees rather. We have we have a really deep symbolic relationship with trees, and so yeah, I think they're I think they're a useful example uh, for many reasons. But that that said, you know, climate change uh, will rearrange all species, not just mm-hmm. trees. So, you know, when you talk about trees, they cover a third of the land on uh-huh. Earth. And they're they're home to countless other species. So this is this is a probably uni- a universal mm-hmm. phenomenon. Zach St. George is a science journalist. He wrote The Journey of Trees, a story about forests, people, and the future. We spoke in September. Finally today, an invitation to our holiday special. In the before times, we would have brought you into a theater, but this year we're bringing the theater to you. The virtual premiere of Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza will be an evening of music and storytelling, and one guest in particular will be bringing the laughs. Comedian Ryan Evans grew up in Chicago, got his start in stand-up in L.A. Now he lives in Colorado, where he helps operate 3E Comedy Club in Colorado Springs. He says this state has changed him. Like, I'm a bike rider now. <laughs> I'm riding my bike. There's a bike path down the house, and I'm just riding. I got sweats on. I got a tank top. I'm waving at people. How you doing? I live here, you know. You know, I'm blending in, I thought. And then a pack, oh, my God, of real riders rolled by. And it is the most frightening thing you've ever seen. If you've never seen this, like a pack of real riders, first off, they pedal in unison together. When they go by you with their little bell, bling, 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 I'm on your left. I'm on your left. Look out. Get out of the way. I'm on your left. Like, don't yell at me like that, Chuck. Steve, Brent. Okay? I live here, too, now. That virtual premiere is next Wednesday night. Buy tickets at CPR.org slash holiday. That's CPR.org slash holiday. We'll even throw in an exclusive CPR cookie cutter. My co-host Ryan Warner and I are hoping to see you there on December 9th. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.